Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, life coach, and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm interviewing Jill Teets from Sober Powered Podcast. I am very excited to introduce y'all to Jill Teets from Sober Powered Podcast. She became sober in 2019 because alcohol caused the complete destruction of her mental health. And she is here to share her story with us today. Sober Powered is a wonderful podcast. It's not just for you if you know you need to get fully sober. It's for sober curious people. Jill has a bachelor's degree in chemistry and a master's degree in biology. She works as a biochemist by day and as a podcaster by night. I'm so honored to have her here. I hope y'all enjoy this interview. Hello, Jill. Thank you for doing this with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I am so excited. And something that my listeners may not know is that I don't let anybody on the podcast, or I haven't yet, that reaches out to me and asks to be on. I only hand select who I've allowed to be on the podcast in the almost four years that we've done it. And after I was on your show, I immediately wanted you on mine. So thank you for being willing to do this. Thank you. Yeah. And when you asked, I was like, no way, me? <laughs> and I feel the same way. I'm very, very, very protective too. So I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's our babies, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jill, let me share or let you actually share with our Emotional Badass listeners what your podcast is. Yeah. So my podcast is called Sober Powered. Um, I I am sober. <laughs> I'm two years sober. Um, And I talk about addiction science on my show. Yes, that's part of what I like about you and why I wanted to have you on because I am good at the how to feel through and you are good at the science part. And I thought it would make for a really good episode and addiction. And I haven't really been able to talk about substance abuse or addiction on my show yet. Yeah. And that's why I wanted you on my show because... (laughs) (laughs) The feeling part is uh, something that I am working on right now. So you're a big help to me and a lot of other people. 
Oh, you're so welcome. It is hands down the best interview I have ever done because of the space that you held with me. So thank you so much for that. Wow. Thank you. I have goosebumps. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I was so myself. I like forgot that we were recording and that hasn't really happened to me before. And I, I think that is, is a testament to how authentic and real you are. And I can feel that coming from you. And I trust that my listeners are going to be able to feel that authenticity coming from you too. Thank so you. you're welcome. I, I joke about this question because when I ask, well, how did you get into sobriety? You know, that's different than how did somebody get into mental health or how did somebody get into woodworking? We kind of know if somebody's sober, how they got into it, right? <laughs> Yep. I got into it uh, because I was extremely miserable (laughs) and decided that um, staying that miserable was not an option anymore. (laughs) Good decisions. Good decisions. (laughs) And I think people who have never struggled with using too much of any substance or getting to that addiction point may not have an understanding that at the end of an addictive process, it's no longer fun. It's absolutely miserable. Nobody feels good, no matter what they're using. It feels icky. It's depressing. It feels gross. And that's kind of a a good thing because without those gross, icky feelings, maybe nobody would ever stop. Yeah, exactly. Without all the suffering there's no reason to stop. And the suffering, like we can tolerate a ton of suffering. It has to get really, really bad for you to consider a change. Like for me, my baseline was so low for so many years. I consistently felt horrible, both mentally and physically. So it had to get like really, really, really bad for me to even consider giving it up. Yeah, I feel that. I I talk a lot about survival mode when it comes to trauma. And I think a lot of people that drink or use drugs in a maladaptive way don't even realize that they are in a survival mode, trying to live every day through that fog, through that cloud, through thinking about that substance. Uh, I'm, I'm from New Orleans. So that is like drinking Mecca of the world. So when you're around people that reinforce that and normalize it, it's hard to know that maybe there's a life outside of that, like very, very different. So let's kind of go back. Let's talk a little bit about like, what was your introduction to alcohol? So the beginning of, uh, I guess, my memories around alcohol were watching my mom drink. Um, So my dad was not a drinker. And I always thought that was weird, (laughs) even back then. Um, But he was like the one drink, like if he felt like he had to kind of guy, like if we were out with family and he was the only one not drinking, like he never really willingly chose to drink unless he felt social pressure. Um, He used to always like complain that he'd get like swollen feet and like feel tired. And and I was like, that's weird. Um, And I didn't understand it. And my parents had a really, really toxic marriage. And my mom drank to cope with the marriage. So I never saw um, the word that pops into my head is good drinking. And I know that's a weird way to put it. I never saw like the romanticized drinking that we see on TV that everybody wants, um, like drinking in Paris or like on a fancy date. I saw 
sad drinking, Mm. the kind of drinking that like nobody wants to do. And that's what I grew up seeing. And because of that, I was like, alcohol is bad. I don't want to do that. Alcohol makes people sad. (laughs) Um, Alcohol is something people use to cope. I don't ever want to drink. That was kind of my opinion of it. And even my family, they don't drink. They'll have like a drink and have like maybe half of it and then be like, I'm so drunk. And like, that's kind of their style. So I never really witnessed anybody drinking except my mom. Um, So long answer, but. Well, you bring up a really good point. Like my mom was a heavy, heavy smoker, like not so much a drinker, but I had asthma. She smoked cigarettes in the house. My mother smoked cigarettes like Cruella DeVille. You've never (laughs) seen anybody drink down a cigarette like my mother. And she was a hard three packs a day. Like that's hard to do. That's a lot. Yeah. It's hard to do. So as a little girl, I would steal her cigarettes and I would break them and like flush them down the toilet. And then she would absolutely lose her shit in a way that I didn't understand as a little girl. I grew up in the time of dare where they brought like the black lungs to school. And then I'd go home and be like, you're killing yourself and try to manage her cigarettes. I mean, the birth of codependency in some ways and not, not really understanding what an addictive process was, but what you're naming is something that I think a lot of people experience and don't really psychologically understand that a lot of us grow up seeing whatever behaviors addictively, even being addicted to something like anger and rage and outbursts. And we decide with our little kid purity and wisdom, I'm never going to do that until something flips and we don't really understand it. That is a way that psychologically we actually can kind of bond and try to understand that parent. And by following their footsteps, even though our younger self swore to never do it. So, so many people, I think, wind up giving themselves a really hard time when it gets bad or they're trying to quit, like, why did I do this to myself? I knew better. I didn't ever want this and don't really understand that that's a big part of why we will repeat some of our familiar familial patterns, even when we have the consciousness and the awareness to go, oh, hell no, I don't want that. Yeah. You just said it. And like, I grew up, I grew up believing that drinking was a hundred percent a choice. And cause I observed everybody choosing to drink. I saw my family, like basically no one drank. My dad chose to never drink. And I just believed like cause and effect. Like my mom was in this really toxic, unhappy situation. So therefore she chose to have a drink. And I always grew up thinking like, I'm not going to let addiction happened to me. Like that would never happen to me. I'm a strong person. I'm educated, um, like all these things. And I thought like, you know, the people that you see on TV or sharing their story or something that they allowed it to happen. And then when I started drinking and it happened to me, I had so much shame around that because I thought it was a choice. I thought it would never be me. And like you said, I grew up saying like, nope, never doing this. Um, And then it happened. And I didn't even know like how to mentally handle that. Like my very first drink, which I think is probably the most important drink that I ever had. But my first drink, I was 18 and I was on a cruise with my family 
and we were cruising to Bermuda where the legal drinking age is 18. And I could legally have a drink on the ship. And I asked my parents and they said it was okay. So like I was doing nothing wrong. Everybody said it was okay. So I had a glass of wine and I don't think I understood like that you get buzzed. I think I always thought like adults, you know, they can control themselves and they have a drink and nothing happens. But if you are bad and you like choose this, then you get drunk. Mm, Okay. So I got my first little buzz on like half glass of wine, like that little flutter. And I was hit with so much shame. You you're bad. You're a loser. You're, you're a bad person. You're not supposed to do this. This is wrong. And I lectured my brother who was 16 and I was like, don't ever drink. It's not worth it. (laughs) And we laughed about it later, but I think that's really telling that instance for, you know, my future. And then I didn't drink basically for like four years after that because of that experience. Oh, wow. So you didn't drink between 18 and about 22, which is almost everyone else I know their prime drinking, binging sort of years, because that's a sad thing for our country. Maybe this younger generation is growing up a little differently, but for my age, I'll be 42 this year. We partied hard. Like that was all being an adolescent was. My own first drink, again, coming from New Orleans was a wedding. It was very, very typical in Louisiana that if you were at a wedding, the kids got served too. I saw somebody walk away from the bar. I must have been maybe 10 or 11. I saw somebody walk away from the bar with an Irish coffee. And I just saw a drink with whipped cream on top and walked up to the bar and went, I want that. All of a sudden, my little shy self was out dancing on the dance floor (laughs) and having a good old time. So, So that first drink for a lot of people is sort of a, it's a good spot to go look at to go, what was I feeling? Because I was anxious. I was a shy kid. I was anxious. I was uncomfortable. And being able to cut loose like that, the effect of that on my subconscious, I think, to be the permission to cut loose through my teens and 20s was really, really strong. Yeah, for me, I was bullied really badly. And that's why I didn't drink. Um, I think that's like the main reason that I didn't drink. I was bullied um, for all of middle and high school. So I never had any friends. Like I would have maybe an occasional friend, um, but I was never invited to parties. So I never had the opportunity. And that was so protective against like teenage drinking for me. And then when I went to college, I had had that experience on the cruise right before college. And I was coming to college as never having any friends. So I was afraid that people were going to be mean to me there too. And that there was something wrong with me. So I just kept to myself really for the first two years and didn't go to any parties. I didn't go to a single college party. And that was also why I didn't drink. I just never had the opportunity. Like when was I going to start drinking like by myself? alone. So yeah, that was a huge part of why I waited opportunity. Well, hearing you say, when was I going to drink like by myself alone? 
I noticed when I was looking at your stuff for the show that you decided to sober up in 2019. And right when I saw that, I thought, damn girl, good timing, <laughs> right? right. Before COVID hitting. Yeah. Like what a good intuition, like to, to do it at that time, because I think more so than any other time in our lives, COVID has given a permission to absolutely sit at home and drink. And I feel like we're really seeing a resurgence in this 1950s and 60s, like just go for it. I told you, I don't think I did on your show, but after when we were chatting, I said, I've turned down other podcasts who pair a drink with the episode. Not because I'm shaming them, like they can do their thing. They have every right to do that, but because I don't want to be someone who accidentally endorses that, that, that I think that is a healthy way to be. I think that is a, a scary, slippery slope to have it so normalized and so haha, this isn't a big deal. The whole wine moms phenomenon is really worrisome to me and not just for the people that are doing it, but for the consequences of children that are witnessing that, especially children that are stuck at home with a parent that's stuck at home. Yeah. It's the kids that are the ones having the consequences from wine mom culture because they're growing up learning this is what I'm supposed to do. Or I read an article, um, I forget what it is, but they were talking about like not feeling safe or confident in your parent because you learn that they're just going to be drinking. And, you know, you go, they take you to your sports event or something and they have their Yeti cup and you know that there's some drink in that cup, but you don't fully understand what it, like you learn to not feel confident about your parent and they teach you like when you have this, then you drink and it makes it better. And you're teaching them the exact behavior like that, that they're going to repeat, like drinking to cope, which then leads to developing a problem, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, so early in my career, I got, I have a license in addiction specifically different than my counseling license. The criteria of addiction is so rigid to me that I like to zoom out because I, I think there's a lot of people out there that will naturally, like as they get older, not have that chemical hook and be able to minimize, reduce, even have, like you said, a good drinking kind of relationship. But for the season that people take in their lives, you know, what they're doing in their bodies, what they're doing to their minds, alcohol affects every single organ in the body in a negative way. It ages us. I mean, there's really not a whole lot positive other than that first little feeling you get from alcohol. So it's not just drinking or not drinking, going totally sober. There's this whole range of how you can invite some harm reduction to reduce and to really take care of yourself in all the ways that that means. Yeah. And there's I love sober curious people because we need more of them. Like there's people who can go out and have a glass of wine and they have it, you know, all over their social media, like it's cool and fancy and they can do it and it's fine. And then there's people like me that have a glass of wine and like ruin their lives. But there's a lot of people in between in like various different degrees. And I love the sober curious people because a lot of them won't give it up completely, but they'll address it. Like I have 
a good friend who's sober curious and she does dry January every single year and she extends it and she does a hundred days and she's like so proud and she's involved in, you know, following all the different pages. And one year she decided to do six months and, and like, she's really on top of it. And for, and some people can do that and that's fabulous. And taking the breaks helps them do that. Like for me, there are no, there are no breaks. Like there's, but I love sober curious people. And I think it's important that their stories are represented too, because it's not black and white. So how did you figure out to go full sober? Yeah. Um, so the simplest way to put it is alcohol makes me very suicidal. Mm, okay. And for a while I thought I am just a suicidal person. <laughs> I must be. I'm just a very depressed, very suicidal person who hates themselves. Uh, and I blame myself. And I thought alcohol was the only thing that made me feel a little bit happy. And if I didn't drink, I would just be miserable all the time. So it was really hard for me to let it go. And Eventually, like the suicidal thoughts became really strong and really scary. And I thought, okay, well, I'll take a break. I was so desperate. I had been a daily drinker for years who had never taken a break. And I had tried to moderate for years with zero success, which should have been a hint, but it wasn't. Um, and I thought, okay, I'll take 90 days off. And if I do 90 days, I'm going to be cured by the end. I just need a healthy reset. <laughs> I need to re my tolerance is just too high, like all of those things. And I did the 90 days and it was really hard. And I realized like on day two, I wasn't suicidal anymore. Oh, wow. It was quick. And then. I made the connection, I think around day 60, like around two months is when you have like a boost of mental clarity and it feels like you can finally see reality for the first time. And that was when I made the connection, like, wow, my drinking made me feel that way. It's I hard for people to believe that, like, we all yeah. know alcohol is a depressant, but that's kind of said like, oh, the sky is blue. Like, it's just this like toss away yeah, we all know that, but let's pound a bunch of alcohol anyway. So you're really proving that right now, like as a real life example of how truly depressive alcohol is. Yeah. Like in the beginning, it's not going to make you suicidal maybe, but the way that it affects your serotonin is it boosts it in the beginning, which is why I thought it was the only thing that made me happy because it made me very, very happy on the first drink or two. And then your serotonin crashes after that below baseline. And that's when the suicidal feelings come, when your serotonin is so low from the alcohol wearing off. And then, and I would repeat that cycle every single day and have the same, the huge boost in happiness and then the huge crash and feeling suicidal. And I was only able to figure it out from a break. Um, and then I still wasn't even convinced. I'm like, well, I'm never going to drink like that again. You know, that's not me. I'm not like all these other people that need to be sober. Um, and then I started drinking again 
And day 91 was actually my 29th birthday. So I thought it was a sign from the universe that I was on the right path and I would be able to moderate (laughs) and all of this stuff. And I drank on my birthday. And the first glass of wine I had, like I was almost crying. Like I was holding in the tears. I was so just like happy, filled with pleasure. I was so relieved. And then um, I moderated for two months after that. And I had never moderated in my life before. Um, And I had two glasses of wine on Saturday night out on a date with my husband and no more. And I wasn't resisting cravings. I wasn't like doing all these special things to make sure I didn't have any more. I just naturally stopped. And I was like, yes, look at me. I did it. 90 days. I figured it out. This amazing. And then we went on a cruise with the drink package. Mm -hmm. And I told myself, it's a special occasion. You have the drink package, drink how you want. You're on vacation. And then you'll go back to moderating. And I drank every day on the cruise. I humiliated myself so many times on that vacation. I can't even look at the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Like really humiliated myself. Um, And then I came back home and I was right back to drinking every single day. The suicidal thoughts came right back and I suffered for a few more months. And then that's when I realized like, no, it's really just the way that you drink. It's not that you let it get out of control and you needed a reset. That's literally just the way that you drink. And then I was able to accept, like, if you drink, you're going to feel suicidal. And I stopped. But I needed that proof. I needed the proof of going back and seeing that nothing changed. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Did you do that on your own? Like, were you in therapy at the time? Were you going to AA? Had Or had you just sort of decided? Yeah, so I had done therapy. Um, so I quit at 29. And I started going to therapy at 27. And I was like, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic or not? (laughs) That's what I went on the first appointment. And I asked, I was so naive. I just want to go give her a hug, you know? And I clearly wasn't an alcoholic, obviously. (laughs) Um, But I did it all by myself. Um, I was very cranky and moody and emotional and angry and not pleasant to be around. You must have been raw. Yep. Very raw. Yeah. My husband, uh, he's a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you had him for support. Yeah. I think that's a question that that gets a lot of people because it seems like such a reasonable question. Well, am I an alcoholic? I used to say in addiction treatment, we never wonder if we're a frog <laughs> because we know damn good and well that we're not frogs. We never, ever wonder. Hmm, I just wonder if I'm this thing. Like the fact that we are wondering with this question contains the answer. Oh my God. I've never heard that. And that is the best thing that I've heard in a long time. We, we don't, I don't ever wonder if I'm a frog. I've never considered it. Yep. So anybody out there who's like, hmm, am I an alcoholic? Like you already know, you, you already know. And that's why traditionally we say denial is one of the stages in traditional recovery. Mm-hmm. So how was it like to do that on your own? 
it was rough. Yeah. Like, how did you, like, how did you figure out what to do? Who did you look to? What resources did you find? Yeah. So the first time I did it, the 90 days, I didn't need any help because I wasn't trying to be sober. I was just taking a break. So therefore I needed no help. Um, Good logic, but I was cranky and miserable and I was trying to make excuses to drink again and quit. Um, But my husband really supported me through it. Um, Yeah, I was just cranky and miserable. And then like, I think month three was when my emotions started to get a little bit better and I was happy and hopeful because I could drink again soon. Um, And then the time I quit for real, because I had done 90 days with no help, therefore I must not need any help. So I did it alone again. And I wasn't as bad because I had accepted that I can never drink again. And that was a game changer because I felt a lot of peace around my decision, even though it was scary and overwhelming and felt sad. I felt at peace. Like the, the mental struggle was gone. Like your intuition was just like this, this is what we need. Yeah. You kind of made a joke about like, haha, the logic, but we really call it an addiction treatment, the addictive logic, because wow, like it, AA says it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it does. It whispers things to you like, oh, you did 90 days. You don't need any help. You can drink again one day. It's it's such a little gremlin that sits on the shoulder, like whispering in the ear while you think you're doing everything right. Just like laying in wait, waiting for the next really good reason that life gives you to do whatever substance again. Exactly. And that's why support is so important. And when I when quarantine happened, I was four months sober wow. and I thought this is a good opportunity to do therapy. Now I can do it online. Like, no, I don't have to be weird about like leaving work or, or like doing anything. So I started therapy um, and then, you know, sharing publicly and whatever and making friends online, like that helps too. But support is really important because I do get sent thoughts all the time you're not as bad as, you know, whoever, like you're not nearly as bad as them. Like maybe you went overboard. Maybe you didn't need to quit forever or Mm -hmm. like you're only 31. Like, are you really never going to drink again ever? You're never going to drink on vacation. Um, I've been having a really triggering week at work and instantly my mind's like, you should drink. You know, things, things are never going to work out for you ever. You should just drink. It's always going to be this way. Like who cares? Why bother? Like my mind just, it's the first thought, anything stressful happens. It's the very first thought you should drink, like go hide in your car, and like ruin your <laughs> like crazy thoughts, like go ruin your life in your car. And then like, you know, go back to normal. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. They're little bastards. They really, really are. Yeah. And that's why support is so important because I feel that I feel that I'm cared about and that I matter to other people, like to my therapist and to all the friends that I've made and people, you know, that I talk to regularly. I feel that like I matter. And if I went to go explode my life, I feel that somebody would care (laughs) and that helps. 
Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. That's amazing that you've been able to put yourself, especially coming from a childhood where friendship was hard for you, that you've been able through sobriety to connect with such a community that can support you. Like kudos to leaning into finding support. It's really, really not easy. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of determination and a lot of vulnerability. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's scary to share, but not everybody... I guess most people do not feel comfortable sharing. And I am a natural oversharer. I'll tell you whatever. So <laughs> sharing about my sobriety like wasn't wasn't that hard. I started small and like worked my way up to being super public, but um I do it for the people that like can't and they reach out to me privately and share. But now they know someone they can reach out to. That's awesome. This is maybe this is the plight of the podcaster. Like this is also part of why I share. It's like I can share my story for everyone else because as different and unique as all of us are, we all really are the same. We yeah. all really, really are the same. So yeah, thank and you for bravely doing that, like for you, you and for everyone. I thought for the longest time, like I was the only one that felt suicidal from drinking, and like no one would be able to understand my experience. And that was another reason I didn't want the support. Um, And then one day I just decided to share that in a Facebook group. And I was like, they're going to call, you know, the, the loony bin patrol to come pick me up and that's it. And I had so many comments on the post and so many people messaged me and they were like, Hey, me too or they shared their story. I felt that way. And then I tried something and thankfully it didn't work. And now I'm sober. And I saw like, really that happened to other people too. And then that inspired me to share again, like what else happened to other people? (laughs) Yeah. It's such a trick of our human psychology that when we're struggling, we all seem to think that we're the only ones on earth who right now are feeling it and who have ever felt it since the beginning of time. Because I think no matter what our pain is, that tends to be a part of the process, whether you were abused as a kid, whether you grew up in chaos, whether you feel like you're failing or you're not doing what you want to do professionally. AA has a term that says um, people die of terminal uniqueness. Yes. And that's what that gets at. That So to sober up to do any kind of recovery, I think part of the process has to be, whether we consciously realize it or not, 
that we are accepting that, oh my gosh, my pain is not this, this unique experience. I am really not alone in this. Even when I feel so alone and it seems like I'm so alone, I really am not. And that's such a source of strength. And I can go so far as to say spiritual connection. Even if somebody said they were an atheist, I go, well, I feel spiritually connected to you just because you shared your pain. So yeah. Thank you. And I think that the things that you share are helpful to me, even though I haven't experienced the same things. But I think shame is a big part of struggling with substances or any kind of addictive behavior. And I see people that I admire sharing things that like, I don't know, I would expect to feel some sort of negative way (laughs) if it had happened to me. And I see these women that I admire just like owning it. And it's like, well, I don't think anything badly of her for sharing that. So like, maybe I'm not as bad as I think for like my own stuff. So I think it helps everybody like just sharing your story and and sharing your shame and all of it because people look up to you, whether you know it or not. And it helps them to see like, well, I don't think anything badly of them. So how can I be bad if they're not bad? It's wild how strongly we can be our worst critics. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so like bad. a big level. And especially if we are, I think, like high achievers, if we expect a lot out of ourselves, it's like that shame rises with that those high expectations of what we expect out of ourselves. And the shame can be so thick and so deep. It really can feel like a quicksand. So that's why we need the support so that we can grab the rope and pull ourselves out of that quicksand so we don't go down and go down hard. Yeah, shame has always been my biggest struggle. And when someone says something like negative about me, I'm instantly like, I take it right into my heart and I'm like, oh, that must be true. And then I like base my life and my feelings around this now true thing that I have accepted. And it's hard and it's hard to like build up that barrier where you don't let all of this negative stuff in. Um So that's what I'm working on in therapy right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think every highly sensitive person listening just resonated with what you said. That really is the process for for so many of us. Mm -hmm. And that's another weird quirk that someone else says something judgmental or shaming and we buy into their truth about us instead of our own truth about who we are or what we're working on or permission to grow and develop too. Yeah, I was talking to my therapist today, actually, about something that someone had said about me. And she's like, well, you know that, you know, that's not true because, and she was listing off like some evidence. And I was like, no, I actually believe it. Like, (laughs) like, I completely 100% believe it right now. So, So, like, even though I know those things you said are true, like, I just believe it. I just believe what they said. It must be, it must be right. Well, that's the work, right? To, to go from that feeling to allowing ourselves to actually know based on the grounded reality and the facts and the evidence like she showed you that we have and to learn how to buy into that more than the shame. Yeah. And it's the same thing 
with drinking where like those, you know, those thoughts come for me, like, you're not that bad, you know, you, you can do it differently this time. You've learned so much. And I can say, well, no, because I have all of this evidence that shows that I can't ever drink again unless I want to be miserable and risk my life. And I'm, I need to learn how to do the same thing like in a positive way for my self image. And it is so hard to just, I don't know, to not accept shame when you're used to feeling shame. I have a hunch and a theory that we can sometimes get addicted even to the feeling of the shame coming or to believing it and buying in. I also believe people can get addicted to chaos the way that they can get addicted to gambling. Like you don't have to put a substance into your body. And since we are just naturally and even healthily creatures of habit of pattern, I think our country struggles and the world struggles so much with addiction because we don't really talk about that as we're growing up, just how, how much we are habitual creatures. Even those of us who maybe resist having a lot of routine, we still are habitual creatures. We are creatures of patterns, patterns that we create intentionally, like driving to work every day or eating dinner every day at about the same time. Or we are, we are creatures where these patterns just develop subconsciously that we're not aware of. So I believe that if we knew more about that, maybe younger in life, we'd have maybe more of a, a natural flow into paying attention to some of those addictive patterns and maybe, like my fingers crossed, like my hope for humanity is in the future, being able to head some of the, the struggle and the pain and the tragedy that can come from addiction, from death and overdose, children growing up in it, getting neglected, their needs not being met. We can head so much of that off at the pass if we, if we know more about this. It's part of why I think your show is so important. Thank you. Yeah. And you said it, like getting addicted to chaos because when you stop drinking the chaos and the constant drama starts to go away and even like your mind changes in a way that you are less dramatic you still might be dramatic and that's something to work on you know whatever but you are just less dramatic because you're not under the influence of alcohol all the time and i have found other ways to introduce chaos back into my life. Like the one that I've been struggling with the most is like this weird thing that I'm doing with takeout is that like I buy food. I know I should cook. I know it's good for me. I loved cooking back before when I was drinking and now I'm like, let's get takeout. And it's like this exciting thing. Like it feels bad. And it, like, you don't, is it going to be late? Are they going to forget something? Like, is the food going to be terrible? Like it's, it's so chaotic. And, and then you have to feel bad later. Like, oh, I should have cooked. And, and that's what I've been doing is like getting this chaos back. And yeah, that's something to think about with the shame too. I didn't consider that, that maybe accepting the shame is my way of keeping like this chaos alive. Yes. Well, I am so grateful for you naming this right now because it's going to help so many people. It's such a big leap for people to understand that they may be addicted. They'll, they'll, they'll tell me, I don't like chaos. That is not who I am. I don't like chaos. It's like, well, no, you don't like it. 
but we lean into it and we do it, it becomes a weird comfort zone and we have to be aware of it and learn how to watch it. And that's how we really start to own our lives more, I think. When you can look at that kind of stuff and realize, wait a minute, this dysfunctional process is showing up for me around takeout food. Because that would sound kooky to anybody, right? I'm having an addictive process with takeout food. You're like, what? What? What do you mean? But we do. It's, it's the whole pattern around that feeling of, oh, 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 what's going on right now? And for so many people, they'll try to just stop drinking and not understand you've, we've got to teach this body and this system how to cope and not create these emotional states that the gremlin goes, ooh, this is the perfect time for your substance. And that is how we participate in that addictive logic that makes us shoot ourselves in the foot, that we have to learn how to pay attention to and change up that domino effect so that those dominoes don't keep falling the same dysfunctional way over and over and over again. Yeah. And even looking back at my life before the drinking, like there were other things that I did (laughs) to make my life chaotic or to maintain the chaos. Like when you're bullied all the time, like your life is constant chaos and uncertainty and pain. And like that became my norm. And then as I became an adult, like I just kind of maintained that lifestyle, that chaotic anxiety filled lifestyle and you remove the drinking and then all of a sudden it's peaceful. It's like (laughs) takeout. Like, what do I do? Sugar, (laughs) Amazon. (laughs) Well, it sounds weird, right? That we would have to learn how to be peaceful. It seems like people would just go, Oh, peace. Wonderful. Let me melt into it. That's the nature of peace. I just feel peaceful. Right. But peace is harder than people realize, especially in our culture. Like, it's not just our internal lives. Like, we live in what's modeled for us is absolute chaos constantly. Like, in our media, in our politics, like, in the way that people interact, our celebrities. Like, there is a constant chaos and a constant going. When triggers are studied in study after study for many, many, many years, boredom tends to be, like, number one. And I think it's because people don't know how to be peaceful. So if you don't know how to sort of luxuriate in a peace, you're bored and the gremlins love that. So does that resonate with you? Like, how do you deal with boredom? Yeah, boredom is hard. Um, And I know that's a huge trigger for people. I think for me, when I'm bored, I start to feel bad about myself. Like I should be more productive. I should do this. I should do that. Like you know, why don't you clean your house enough? Or, or why aren't you cooking? Or, you know, why aren't you working harder at your job? Or you should be doing podcast related, whatever. And it triggers me to like beat myself up. And I think I've been working on learning like peace and boredom are different things, even though I clearly struggle with peace. (laughs) Um, I'm learning that like, just sitting and feeling like, okay, and watching a show and feeling like a little bored is a normal part of a person's life. Like your life doesn't have to be upbeat and exciting and like, go, 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 go all the time. And I've had periods throughout my two years where I've made myself insanely busy to again, have, you know, have some chaos and some stress or whatever, but to avoid this boredom thing, you know, and peace that I was confusing as boredom. 
And I've been learning like, just, just chill. It's okay. If you sit and watch TV, like after this, I'm going to go watch The Bachelor with my husband and we're just going to relax and it's okay. And I don't have to be productive (laughs) all the time. Um, But yeah, I beat myself up for it. Boredom makes me beat the crap out of myself. You Mm -hmm. should do this. You should do better. Why aren't you good enough? Why don't you work harder? More, more, more like productivity, Mm -hmm. productivity. You make a brilliant point because we don't like boredom. We resist it. But if we don't embrace it, then what we're saying to ourselves is we must constantly be stimulated, constantly, 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 if we can't do a little bit of boredom. And I think for ambitious people too, not becoming a workaholic, whether you struggle with substances or not, that's a really, really hard one. People that get addicted to good things that do good things for their lives, like working really hard and making their career push forward. I've seen people addicted to volunteering. I had somebody tell me they were on like like damn near 50 committees. I was like, whoa, like this is so like, we don't know how to sit and be still. And in this, and we're doing that to children, right? When they look at children now versus like the fifties and the sixties, parents used to go in the seventies, go outside and play, see you when the sun goes down and they'd entertain themselves. Now we have scheduled kids that have lessons and activities and play dates and this and that and this and that, and they go and they go and they go and they go. So we may be having an epidemic of people not embracing or knowing that it's smart to value stillness and just being instead of constant entertainment. The phone and media certainly isn't helping with that either. Yeah. We have no idea how to just be and chill and that it's okay. Um, When you were talking about kids, you made me think of this little girl that I used to teach. So I taught math um, while I was in grad school and it was an after school program that like all the smart kids went to and then they got perfect scores on the SAT and they got into these best colleges and they would go to regular school all day and then go to two hours of extra math class in the afternoon or at night with me. Um, And I had this little girl cry in my class because we would have these tests twice a year to make sure that I was doing my job and the curriculum was doing its job. And they never saw the score. It had no impact on their grade. It was just to make sure that the school was working. And I had this little girl cry. She was so anxious about the test. And it had no impact on her at all. And it just broke my heart. And she was in second grade. She wasn't even like an eighth grade or something. She was a little girl. And she was crying because of this test and how much stress. And you think about, you know, when that's her norm, feeling that way, growing up and then having a peaceful life. Like, what do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I I think that's what we're doing like with our podcast, both of us in different ways is trying to show people that that's okay. And that there really is room to teach ourselves these things that we don't have to feel badly. You know, I know I felt really badly when I realized I have to learn how to be still in my life. I've never had a problem like with one thing being addictive, but to deal with the chaos and the abuse of my childhood and growing up in new Orleans, 
I had periods where I drank way too much. I had periods where I did way too many drugs that were not good for my body or my system. Um, I had periods where I used sex in a way that was escapism um, and was not knowing how to make myself feel good in any way, shape, or form. Um, It has been quite the journey for me to really understand that the more that I center and teach my inner child psyche, my body, my mind, hey, guess what? It's safe to just chill. As simple as that sounds, that has been everything for me. And without even trying, like the last drink I had was in February when I got married because somebody at the restaurant bought us champagne. So I am not a strictly sober person, but just by learning how to sit and be still with myself, I naturally didn't want alcohol and didn't want alcohol and didn't want alcohol until I have just grown into a non-drinker. If we could interview my 22-year-old self, my 16-year-old self, they would not believe that that was an easy process for me. And it was because somewhere along the way, yoga training plus my graduate training showed me the value in that. Like, like nobody I had ever grown up with showed me the value of. Yeah. And every time I come across a trigger or like a highly stressful situation, I realize like I'm still learning how to do this because my thoughts are like, you should drink, you should eat a thousand cookies, you should get takeout, Um, you know, you should not eat, you should exercise for three hours, like all these, like you need to go on a diet. (laughs) Did you know that you were fat? Did you know? (laughs) And all these things that are like control, like I'm seeking to control my emotions and like instantly fix my mood. Like whatever you're going through, alcohol is going to fix it real quick. Like not even when you have the drink, just when you decide that a drink is coming, your mood is different. Your brain chemistry is different just from the anticipation of it. And when you're used to that, like, I don't know, doing healthy things is hard. Like I keep realizing, like, I don't even know what to do. What do I do with myself besides like eating cookies and ordering takeout and not cleaning and then beating myself up for it? And <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore. So it's, yeah, it takes a long time, I think, to learn because I never knew. It's not like I'm rediscovering. I feel like I never knew. And you're at that two year mark. Mm-hmm. And two years is a very special timing in sobriety because it's like that first year, you're like, oh, everything is new. It's still very like novel. You're like, look at me. I survived my birthday. <laughs> I survived the holidays. You know, that work review, like I survived that too. And the second year is like, all right, look at me. I did it for the second time. I've really got this. And I think it's really in starting that third year where the gremlins really go, Oh yeah, now it's just life. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Can you speak to that? Yeah, no more milestones, no more excitement. Like the first year was like two months sober, three months sober, 200 days sober, like 300 days. So like everything's a milestone. First Halloween sober, first time hanging out with my family sober, first weekend sober, you know, first like time going out to eat sober. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so exciting. Like that 
it's like the pink cloud. Like you're just high on life. And that's how the first year is. Like it's hard still, but you're just high on life. You're so proud of yourself. You're so amazing. (laughs) Sobriety's the best. Like who knew you could feel that good? And then year two, it's like, yeah, I feel pretty good. 13 months, you know, that's great. 14 months, okay. Not really, not really excited anymore. Like, like who cares that you're 14 months over? Like the, the 15 months, like it's it becomes so random. It loses the excitement. Like a year and a half, it's like, okay, that one's kind of exciting. Like they it loses the the sparkle. Mm-hmm. And you know, Halloween, I got this. Christmas time, psh, whatever. And you might have more triggers and you learn to get through them. And it's like, okay, I still got this. I got this. And then now it's like, it just is. No one's excited about my sobriety anymore. (laughs) My husband's heard me talk about it. (laughs) Real life really sets in. It's just at like, it's just who I am. That's it. There's no more excitement. Um, And then that like boredom comes back and like beating yourself up and finding new ways to beat yourself up. And so now there's no like always chasing the next one. Like I'm going to be two and a half years sober in May and I'm already kind of like, okay, that's cool. You know, whatever. (laughs) It's kind of cool. But it's already like not that important. So, so I'm thinking like, you should get skinny and you should like do all these things. And I'm just trying to like chase the next thing. And I think this is the year that I really have to learn to just like be and that life isn't exciting 100% of the time or chaotic 100% exciting, I guess, either direction, either negatively exciting or positively. Um, But yeah, I just have to learn. I don't know. I asked when I went to ask a therapist when I was 27, if I was an alcoholic, I told her, like, I don't know what to do with my time. What do I ask? Like, what do normal people do if they don't drink? What do they actually do? Like, what do they do? Because it takes up all the hobby space. It takes up all the interest it takes mm-hmm. up all the time. It takes up finances. Like it takes up so very much that people are truly puzzled when they get any kind of addictive substance out of their lives. It's the same with the phone now. If I walked up to most people right now and went, I'm taking your phone. And then I said, then you're going to go stand in line over there for 20 minutes. You have to be in this line. Like most people would be like itching and coming out of their skin at this point. Well, what do I do? How do I be in the line? What do you mean? How do you be in the line? <laughs> go be in the line. <laughs> Well, what do I do? What do I do? Go be in the line until your system accepts what being in the line is. I also think there's a process of really learning what it is to actually love ourselves, not just love when we're achieving things or we're knocking it out of the park or we're really proud. I mean, that's not so hard, but in the quiet stillness, like when nobody's around, when we're not doing shit, how do I actually like love myself? And that, I mean, that's one of those questions that I think we have to come back to over and over again, because it's not somewhere that I think you get and just stay like, it's not a destination. I believe it's going to be a journey all of our lives because this life is going to continue. It does to me to challenge everything about who I am, my integrity, my principles, who I want to be, what happens when I get emotional and intense, 
as a highly sensitive person who's high sensation seeking? How do I make that reasonable in my life? Something that makes my life better and doesn't self-sabotage my life. And I, I think we, we flow within some kind of balance point because there's no way to ever do that perfectly, ever, ever, ever. So we're dealing with that too of how do we accept that we can't perfectly balance all those things. We have to practice the good enough. And I think it's one of the, the biggest journeys we can go on. And once we embrace it, I think it'll always be with us. I do think it's a lifelong thing, like you said. And I feel like whenever I think I have something figured out, something happens in my life that I realize like, oh, <laughs> I guess I am not an expert at life yet. I still clearly have a lot to learn. Like even though, like before when I was drinking, if someone said something negative to me, I would go drink at that person. And I would like make myself feel even worse. And I would go on a rant and I would be so dramatic and get even more upset and not sleep and not take care of myself. And I don't do that anymore. So I can look back and see how I've grown, but I still can't handle things like that very well. So I think I'm constantly being faced with these situations and seeing like, oh, there's some work to be done here. Like, I don't know what to do. I think that's what's happening a lot is something, something happens in my life. I'm like, Ugh. like alcohol, cookies, like mm -hmm. starvation. Like, I don't know what to do here. And then figuring out like, okay, what can I do? Like, those are all on the list of like, you can't do. So figuring out like, what else is there again? Like, what do normal people do? <laughs> So let me ask you this before I ask you about the podcast. You have a science background, like you have a master's degree. Is it in biology? Yeah. Okay. So what are some of your favorite facts? Like what do people need to know about the science? Like the part that I'm not good at and to explain, like what, what do you want people to know about alcohol and the brain, the body, the science behind it? So my favorite one is that alcohol doesn't feel the same for everybody. Um, I used to look at people at the bar who would leave half a drink behind and I could not believe how they could be so weird and boring that they wouldn't want to finish their drink. I could not understand it. And I couldn't understand why my husband would stop drinking and switch to water. <laughs> why doesn't everybody want a thousand drinks? I have no idea. It's the best thing ever. And then I stopped drinking and I researched it and I was like, whoa, not everyone feels the same amount of pleasure from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Some people, it feels like the most amazing thing in the entire world and other people, it just feels fine. And if it feels fine for you, you're less likely to drink a thousand drinks. And there was a cool study um, that I thought you might enjoy. It was on morphine, but I think it can be applied to everything. Is people with a history of trauma find morphine much more pleasurable than people without a history of trauma. So they had two groups and they had a group of people with childhood trauma and a group of people without. Everything else was equal. And the group without the trauma had morphine and they felt kind of nauseous and like they didn't really like it. And the people with the childhood trauma had morphine and they like got high off it. Like it was 
pure pleasure. They felt amazing. They had no like negative physical side effects. And I think that just like kind of proves the point. Like it depends on your life and the way your brain works, what you're going to gravitate to. It's not that, you know, I'm not a strong person because I can't have two drinks and stop. It's that you have no idea how amazing those two drinks feel for me. They don't feel that way for you because you can stop. Not you, the general you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like my family that has one drink and like they don't finish it, like they have no idea how amazing alcohol could potentially feel. And it just feels that good for me. And like studies have shown you don't even develop a tolerance to that pleasure. Like that first drink is always going to feel so freaking amazing. Like that's why after my 90 days, I had my first drink. I almost cried. It felt so good. Mm -hmm. And that's not because I'm weak-willed or a loser or like I can't handle life. It's just the way my brain works. Like your brain just works in different ways and everyone's different. And mine loves alcohol. My body has been built to process alcohol like a champion. That's another of my favorite facts. Like I drink and I never feel bad during. I drink and drink and drink and drink. And then I go to sleep and my husband drinks and he feels tired and he gets a headache. And some other people will drink and they'll get kind of flush or they'll feel like maybe a little like nauseous or something, they're less likely to drink because of that. That's something that's protective. But if you process alcohol great and you feel amazing the whole time, well, then you're more likely to drink. And even then, like I never had a multiple day hangover in my entire life. So it's very easy to become a daily drinker. For other people that don't process alcohol as well as me, they might have two or three day hangovers. So they are more likely to become a weekend binge drinker. So it's just, I see it as a bunch of risks that just add up like childhood trauma, how good it feels for you, how well you process it, who you're married to. Does your partner like to drink or not? Mm -hmm. All of these things just add up to then create a problem or not. Um, Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I want to understand like exactly why my brain works in the weird way that it does. I have a hunch that it's it's part brain science, body chemistry, and part psychology. I don't see how it couldn't be the combination of those things. I read somewhere a million years ago about people with anxiety liking crunchy foods. And that dinged like a light bulb in me because if I want a snack... I've always run anxious my whole life. If I want a snack, I want crunch. And once I read that, I thought that makes so much sense. Like you're working out that anxiety and like crunching and crunching. So very often I think, you know, instead of like drugs and alcohol, bad, bad. If we step back and look at like, well, why am I doing this? What might this be doing for me? Like one of the reasons that people make fun of Freud in psychology is because he said, well, if you were shy and socially awkward. How about some cocaine? And he's not <laughs> wrong. Like he is not wrong. Like that works for social anxiety. So if you struggle with that, 
it would be more likely if that's a drug that you have tried that that would become your drug of choice. That is why it's not just everybody who tries alcohol, everybody who tries heroin, everybody who tries cocaine jumps off the cliff with that substance. It's all of these different factors playing to what kind of escapism feels the best to the system? What channels the energy in a way that just feels almost ecstatic? And whatever hits that feeling, like you've described with alcohol, is going to be the thing that we really, as a society in 2022, we should know this at this point, to watch for these things. It's tragic that we don't. Hopefully things like this episode will help people just be able to pay attention. We all know some people that cannot put the phone down and have to be in front of a screen. Like that's something to look at. What is that doing for me? How do I manage that? So we can kind of flip-flop it and go, wait, why is this the thing that I'm into? Am I socially awkward? Is that why cocaine is my thing? Oh, then maybe I can work on that kind of social anxiety and awkwardness with a therapist, and that can help diminish that drive and that desire, that craving for whatever the substance is. So that's why we pair therapy with recovery so that we can figure those things out as we're going and really support our own recovery and growth process instead of, it's another AA term, white knuckling it, like holding on to the steering wheel and just, I'm not drinking, I'm not drinking, I'm not, I'm not doing the substance, I'm doing the thing, damn it. Everyone tell me that this is good enough. But it, can, <laughs> it really can start to become easier as we really learn how to be more balanced, mindful people that can pay attention to these factors as our self-care. Yeah. And that's what I've done with the takeout too, is I've looked at it like, why are you ordering so much takeout? What is this doing for you? <laughs> can you like, do you have to get so much takeout? Can we do something about this? But like getting curious about what is it doing for me? Cause you wouldn't do it if it wasn't doing something for you. Yes. And that's missed when we just go bad, bad, shame, shame. That shouldn't be happening. That's too much. There really is some information there. So anybody who's out there thinking about this stuff and looking at their own behaviors, step away from that judgment or that shame. See if you can like lift it up and put it to the side for a minute and just be curious about what that pattern might show you because there might really be some valuable information there for you. Yeah, it's so important. And that that's how I look at everything. Like all my instincts, like, you know, drink. Oh, I can't do that. Eat a thousand cookies. <laughs> like obviously everyone knows why I want to eat a thousand cookies. And then the new one, like starve yourself. Don't eat it all today. And then I think like, why would I be wanting to do that? Well, because that makes me feel very controlled and I feel accomplished for eating zero <laughs> calories for the day. Like I can analyze it more and then it reduces the power that that thought has because I understand it better. Yes. Yes. Well, we know this with food too, food and sugar um, from the ACEs study that a lot of people who carry a lot of weight and food, what they're doing is they're cushioning themselves from the world. And if you can understand that, that can give you such a a light on the path of, of where you need to go to start taking care of yourself and your own inner child and to get more balanced in all the ways. Mm -hmm. All right. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Like how did that start? When did that start? And what do you want my listeners to know about your podcast that I highly recommend to all of you, not just people struggling with substances? Thank you. Um, so when I stopped drinking, I was convinced that I was a loser who chose to drink that way 
and had no self-control or anything good about myself. And I wanted to understand, like, is that actually true? Is my husband just a better person than me? And because I'm a biochemist during the day, I knew where to find whether that was true or not. So I started reading the literature and learning about it. And I, that became my new hobby um, or a hobby because I never had hobbies before because I would just drink. But then I think I was like eight months sober and I woke up one day and it was helping me so much to let go of like, you are bad. You are a loser. This is your fault that I woke up and I was like, everyone needs this information. I am you know, spending a lot of time on this. I'm very capable of digesting it. And not everyone has the time or educational background to commit to finding this information. So I thought like, how can I share this? And I was like, well, you could write a blog. And then I was like, do people read those? I don't know. I don't know if people like those. And then I thought you could do a podcast. Those are cool, but I had no idea how to do it. And then I was like, you could also do a YouTube. And then I was like, ooh, Cameron, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, podcast. And then I just figured it out and I just put it out there. Um, yeah, and it, I think it keeps me sober too because, I don't know, I have like a purpose. It's and an ability. Exactly, yeah. And I know that my podcast helps people. And even if I have, you know, a stressful week or I have personal stuff going on, like, they kind of keep me motivated and going, which then helps me because then I maintain healthier habits. <laughs> I think that's really how it works. I think when, when we give in the way that you do and the way that I do on the show, there, yes, we're supporting other people, but it also supports us. It really, really does. It's an accountability and a groundedness of, oh yeah, this is what I'm here for. I'm living out this purpose and it transforms when you take your pain and you transform it into something useful. I don't know that there's a better feeling on the earth. Yeah, that's the best way to put it useful because all the shame and hating myself and, you know, blame and whatever, that's not useful at all. But I've taken that and, you know, I had to suffer for a while along the way to get to this point. But now I'm in a place where I can present this information to other people and explain to them, you know, it's not, it's not your fault. It doesn't mean that you suck or that you're a loser or you're selfish or anything. And I can help people. And that helps me knowing that I can have an impact and like all of those years weren't like wasted because that's something that I struggled with too, that I've like wasted so many years of my life drinking or just like being bullied or being miserable or something. And, and it feels like it's all come together to make me who I am to then like help other people. I think that's a big bit of truth right there that when people finally, finally kind of pull their head out of the substances and start looking around, there's a massive grief process. I think that's often why people go back and that's part of what makes recovery and change so hard. So if we can know, we really do have to allow ourselves to grieve to go through that anger process, to go through that maybe even depressive process as we realize and let go of the denial of, oh my gosh, I have spent my precious life force 
in this way. And that does not respect me. doesn't respect my goals. It doesn't respect my ambition, does not respect my heart, doesn't respect my mind and who I am and what I want out of my life. Why did I do that to me? And that becomes such a big part of the process of forgiving ourselves as we turn this into something useful. Exactly. Yeah. And it's never, it's never too late to make a good change. I have people that reach out to me in their seventies yep. and they're making a change. And who cares if you only have one year left or you have 40 or 60, you know, do you want that? However much time that is to be good. <laughs> it's never too late. And anybody can give that to themselves. Anybody, mm-hmm. anybody. Oh, Jill, thank you so much for sharing yourself. Thank you for having me. You're so very welcome. I'm willing to collaborate with you, have you on again, do whatever you want. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. You are welcome. Find Jill at soberpowered.com. Find the Soberpowered podcast anywhere you download podcasts and follow her work, y'all. It was one of the best interviews I've ever done. So there's an episode with me getting interviewed by Jill. And I'm so happy that she was willing to come on the show and share herself with all of you. I'm an emotional badass. Jill's an emotional badass. And you are an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love. And I will see you right here next week with a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to Calm History dot com.